0: Hey friends, I'm Christine Chapel, and you're listening to the Hope and Help podcast from IBCD, where we host biblical conversations about life's challenging problems. In this episode, we chat with Dr. Charles Hodges about his book, Good Mood, Bad Mood, Help and Hope for Depression and Bipolar Disorder. For more help on the topics we discussed today, visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help where you can access notes from today's episode and browse related resources from our digital library. Before we get started, let me introduce you to our guests. Dr. Charles Hodges is a family physician who practices medicine in Indiana, is board certified in family medicine and geriatrics, and is a licensed marital family therapist. He is also the executive director for Vision of Hope, which is a residential facility for women who struggle with eating disorders, self-harm, OCD, substance abuse, and other problems. Dr. Hodges is a graduate of the Indiana University School of Medicine, Liberty University, and Liberty Baptist Theological Seminary, with degrees in medicine, counseling, and religion. He teaches and counsels at the Faith Biblical Counseling Ministry, and also teaches on medical subjects and biblical counseling around the country and abroad. He and his wife, Helen, have four children and 13 grandchildren. Hey there, Dr. Hodges. Thanks so much for joining us for the show today.
1: Thank you for inviting me, I I count it a privilege to be here.
0: I can just tell you from personal experience, your book has been such a key part of my own journey to healing and walking through a really long time, almost a couple decades of on and off depression. I actually did at one point qualify for a bipolar two diagnosis. And so this topic is not just academic. For me, this was my life. This was something that I had to walk through and I actually did turn to your book, Good Mood, Bad Mood as a resource. Now, I wonder if you, might help us have a better understanding of what the diagnostic criteria is for bipolar disorder and maybe how it differs from depression or as you say the disordered sadness
1: you know we could start with the depression it's it's probably easier it's requires in order to get a diagnosis today of depression it doesn't really take much and that's that's the problem you just have to have a sad mood it has to last for two weeks it has to uh, be there present most of the day, every day, or you have to have lost interest in something that's very important to you. I always you know, try to make a joke. I, t- I tell people I don't tell jokes because I, I'm not good at it. And my friends try to caution me against it. But I, I always tell people, uh, you know, for me, it would be losing interest in something important like golf, you know? well, mm. you know, other people have things that are, are obviously far more important, but you lose interest in things that were enjoyable, to you. You have to have one of those two things. You have to have it for two weeks. And then you might be thinking of harming yourself or you're grieving or struggling with guilt. Uh, You also would have either an increase in your appetite or a decrease in it that would meet the criteria. Uh, Most people who are depressed struggle with sleep disturbances. Either they sleep too much or they sleep too little. And, And then they also struggle with thinking, you know, being able to do their work. And they also struggle with fatigue you know, the really good thing about the fact that I had to make my way through five publishers in about five years was that there was a considerable amount of research that was going on that would be very instrumental in the book. One of the aspects of it was the concept of the difference between normal and disordered sadness that Alan Horowitz and Jerome Wakefield talk about and that when you look at depression, which I talk about at length for 13 chapters, probably 90% of those in the United States who are diagnosed with depression, really just have normal sadness over loss, you know, Mm -hmm. they've lost something important to them, they can't get it back, and they haven't come to grip with it. And that the other 10% probably have something that was used to be called disordered sadness, which was the only thing we would have labeled as depression when I graduated from medical school. That means that you can't tell me why you're sad, you've always Mm -hmm. been this way, you can't tell me when it started, and you can't give me a reason. 90% of people in the United States can tell you what happened. They can tell you the day it happened. They can tell you what they lost. In in essence, they are grieving. The good outcome of me taking so long to write the book was that I got to write, I think, a useful book about depression and how to deal with it from a biblical viewpoint. And then I also got to understand why so many diagnoses of bipolar disorder, too, were being made. That was an outcome of the overdiagnosis of normal sadnesses, depression, and then the treatment of it with antidepressants whose side effects look exactly like the description of hypomania, which is one of the requirements to make that diagnosis. Bipolar disorder requires the diagnosis of depression. If you're going to have bipolar disorder 1 or bipolar disorder 2, you had to have had an episode that meets that criteria. Plus then, for bipolar disorder one, you're going to have to have an episode of mania. Mania is when someone stays awake all night for two weeks. I'm not talking about staying all night for a couple of days or anything like that. These are people who can stay, who will stay awake for days on end, who then, and perhaps as a result of staying up all night for a couple of weeks in a row, struggle with delusions and hallucinations. They have pressured speech. They... Uh, have grandiose thinking that cannot be easily dispelled. I, I can remember talking to a young man. He worked at a car wash, and he was working on uh, doing an initial public offering of stock to buy the car wash, which was a large number of car washes in the uh, in this area. And, you know, the poor guy didn't have $200, and he was li- leaving Uh, $100 tips for waitresses at IHOP. He tried to rent a jet to bring a relative to a basketball game. All things that might be normal if you were a millionaire or a billionaire. So it's grandiose thinking, thinking Mm -hmm. that I can do things that I really can't. And also being stuck in it, being unable to be dissuaded of it. Like the fellow that I knew once who was buying up 38th Street in Indianapolis, you know, which is 30 miles long and was in the hospital because the family was trying to protect him from himself because what he was doing was going to financially ruin him. So it's that kind of grandiose thinking, spending money that they don't have. Uh, Some folks spend $30,000 on clothes and bring it all home and never take it out of the boxes. That kind of unrestrained and unusual spending. They also can make other disastrous decisions from a moral viewpoint. That's kind of the criteria that we look for that would make that diagnosis. It is all observational. There isn't a blood test to do for that in schizophrenia. I wish I had, you know, the kind of test you do for the flu. Where you put a little swab up somebody's nose and stick it in the machine. and 15 minutes, bang, you can tell them what's going on. We don't have that. You have to exclude, you know, bipolar disorder is uh, and like, very like schizophrenia. In this regard, you have to exclude everything else in the world that could be causing it before you would put that label on somebody. And it probably needs to have recurred. You know, they need to have more than one episode because most people, 30 to 50 percent of individuals who have a delusional or psychotic episode will never have another one. And so you're not going to put that label on anybody outright. You need to find out if they are taking any medications that might cause trouble. Other things that can cause people to act like they are manic when they aren't are marijuana. Marijuana is big with that regard, and uh, the opioids, any of the uh, pain medicine opioids can give an appearance of someone who is manic or who was manic, and side effects of steroids, even the side effects of antidepressants and other medications. So those are the criteria. These individuals uh, probably would remind you of Robin Williams mm-hmm. on a good day when he was happy and talking in a hurry, making jokes, cracking jokes left and right. They would seem to be funny. Bipolar disorder has several categories. Bipolar disorder one, which is the one uh, that used to be called manic depression, and which was the only one until they changed the DSM-3 in 1980. Then they added bipolar disorder two. Cyclothymia, bipolar disorder uh, caused by substance use or medication, and then mania alone, and bipolar otherwise not specified, which is sort of a, a category where they put people when they're not certain of what they have. The bipolar disorder two diagnosis uh, does not have mania. Mania gets you out of that category. Period. Instead, you're supposed to have hypomania, which uh, you know, sort of manic but not quite. Is uh, you know, is would be if you were studying Greek, you would look at that and say that. But it is a period of four days uh, in which uh, your activity level would be higher. You would be getting more work done. You would say that you were more goal oriented. You would only sleep four hours a night it's not required that they not sleep at all but and and it generally lasts about four days uh the thinking is probably a little less grandiose and a little less delusional and it's not nearly as disruptive for individuals as is the bipolar one mania and you know i i would say that 90 percent of the diagnoses of bipolar disorder You know, one of the classic things is, is when an individual comes to my office and they say they have bipolar disorder, I just ask them which one. And I can tell you that I have only had one or two patients in all the years I practiced medicine, which are now about 45, who'd ever been able to look at me and say, I have one, two, mania alone, cyclothymia, or one of the other diagnoses. Mm -hmm. Almost nobody ever gets, you know, the explanation that this is the kind of bipolar disorder you have. The big issue is is that a lot of people who carry this label or a good number of people who carry this label may not have anything wrong with them other than being normally sad and being labeled with depression and then treated with medication, maybe multiple medications because their normal sadness doesn't go away because no one sits down with them and talks to them
0: Mm -hmm. about
1: why they're sad. And in particular, you know, with regard for us in biblical counseling, no one sits down with them and opens the scriptures and shows them out of the scriptures what the Bible says about what they could do about that sadness. If you start categorizing it that way, then, you know, when you get down to looking at people who have bipolar disorder one, You know, this becomes a lot different than someone who has understandable normal sadness and then who's on three medications for it because their depression didn't get any better while they were at their family physician and then ended up in a psychiatrist's office who says, well, the reason why you didn't get better with the SSRI antidepressant is because you don't have just depression. You have a special kind of depression called bipolar disorder and then they end up on a atypical antipsychotic, perhaps, or what they call mood stabilizers, the anti-epileptic drugs. These folks can end up on two and three different kinds of medicine and uh, subsequently struggle as a result.
0: There's a book by Ed Welch on depression and he mentions in that book that there may or may not be physical causation going on, but that there's always a spiritual component that we need to address. Since the term isn't in the scriptures itself, how do you, as a biblical counselor, begin to analyze the various experiences that people are facing, whether it be during periods of mania or depression?
1: I don't counsel people according to labels, that's my, you know, one of the things I try to teach, I teach counseling, and one of the things I try to make sure that my students understand is that we don't, in biblical counseling, counsel people according to labels. You come in with a label, it doesn't mean that I'm going to decide how to counsel you based on it. What I am going to do is listen to you talk, you know, I'm going to sit down and patiently listen to you talk so you can tell me what your thinking is and then how your emotions are wrapped up in that, and then what your behavior is. I, you know, I guess at the outset, I would say, I avoid counseling people by labels. You know, when I look at the individual who has bipolar disorder one, and maybe they've had three and four episodes of mania, you know, it's a recurrent thing for them, and or the schizophrenic who hallucinates. I, you know, when I see them, I, I look at them differently. I look at them as people who are in the grip of a chronic disease, and You know, the biblical application for them is how do you respond to this disease in a way that will glorify and honor God? and make the most of your response. It would be similar for the individual who had disorder, sadness, sadness for no reason. What's going to be your biblical response to that? For one individual who I counseled, who was labeled with bipolar disorder one at one time in his life, schizophrenia at another time in his life, depression at another time in his life, who was coming to see me because everybody thought he was angry all the time. And he would say that he would get depressed, you know, every winter. And, you know, as our, our conversation unfolded, as, as he talked with me, what I found out was uh, he looked angry to me, but he wasn't. What would happen was, was what, when he would start to develop his sadness, he would quit talking to people. And the reason why he would quit talking to them, because that was the non-functional, I always call it a non-functional way that he had learned to deal with it over 40 years in his life. Mm-hmm. really didn't help him much. It caused him trouble with his family. His wife and children uh, didn't like it. Uh, You know, the people he worked with thought that he was hard to be around. And what he found and and the way it worked out was that there was a biblical way he could respond to that sadness that didn't include with him walking around all the time, refusing to talk to people. And as we worked with him in responding to his sadness, he developed the ability to have his annual sadness without walking around with a scowl on his face all day. Mm-hmm. You know, you know. I think the probably the main uh, passage of scripture that I would one of them, not the main one, but one of them would be James chapter one, where it talks about it counting all joy, brethren, when you fall into various kinds of trials, knowing that the trying of your face works maturity. And the word there is a geomai, and what it means when it says count it, it is what it what you're doing is you're taking your sad thinking and you are moving it to the joy that you can have in Christ knowing that whatever the trial is that you're having is going to mature you and and make you more like Christ. The joy that he would talk about was the joy that Jesus had in Hebrews 12, where looking at the cross and not considering it fun, he had joy because he knew that we would be redeemed and the war would be over and sin would be paid for. And that gave him joy despite the suffering that he was going through at the time. Those would be the passages of scripture that I probably appeal to as I'd be working with individuals who had mania or or who had any other chronic problem that uh, seemed to be recurring for them
0: i really resonate with what you just mentioned there about just learning how to respond to the different experiences that may come along with these types of struggles so if when you are feeling perhaps like you don't want to go to sleep and you could be up for days on end learning how okay i'm recognizing i'm feeling this way now what is a god-honoring response how can i in partnership with the holy spirit and with people around me supporting me how can i train to respond differently. And I just know for me personally, over a period of time, like you mentioned, and through the scriptures, of course, just learning that, okay, I don't have to fix all these problems right now. I need to just learn how to walk with Jesus as these problems come and he will help me to mature me in godliness. And I would say that in my experience, that has led to a significant amount of healing in uh, a variety of areas related to what we're talking about today. I would also say too that there was a time in my life where i was told by a doctor that my brain was diseased and that i would be crippled with depression for the remainder of my adult life and i guess that's possibly not uncommon for those diagnosed with bipolar disorder to be told something to that effect but i appreciated that in the book good mood bad mood you pointed out that quote the notion that human personality is locked into predetermined pattern of behavior comes in part from the belief that our brains have finished developing and changing by the time we reach adulthood. Can you help explain how science has actually disproved that belief and what it means for those labeled with bipolar disorder?
1: Well, you know, it's, it's sort of like do you want your brain envisioned, you know, as concrete or plastic. And most neurology at the turn of the, between the 19th and the 20th century would have said that if you have a stroke, you're you know everything is set, and by the time you're an adult at the age of 21, your brain is what it's going to be, and it's not going to change much. Well, you know that was before we could image brains that were alive, and, mm-hmm. and it's always been the, the conundrum for medicine: is how do you figure out what you know a, a neurologic disease is when you're looking at someone who is currently breathing you really can't get into their head very well until the invention of the CT scan and the MRI scan and the PET scan I I think probably the most interesting writing about it is written by a guy named Schwartz Jeffrey Schwartz uh, brain lock and it has to do with OCD but the interesting thing that he demonstrated was that people's brains change as they go through counseling particularly individuals who were struggling with OCD, that initially parts of their brains would light up like a nuclear power plant because they were constantly thinking about their obsession and then constantly doing whatever ritual that went along with it. As these people went through counseling, he would say that that picture changed over time and that their uh, MRI scans would go back to a more normal picture. You know, I think one of the easiest concepts has to do with violin players. If you look at the MRI scan of a violin player uh, and look at the motor cortex on both sides of their head, what you find is, since all of the fingering goes on with your left hand and the bowing goes with your right, is that the motor cortex on the right side of your brain, because it makes a crossover, uh, mm-hmm. Will be it will be bigger in the left hand than it will be on the right. Why? Because while well, the left hand's doing all kinds of stuff mm-hmm. in order to play the song, the right hand's just going back and forth and holding onto the bow. And so you can do that for almost any kind of motor activity, and uh, probably also for cognitive activities, thinking. Uh, you know what we think about makes a difference in what our brain looks like. So we're pretty certain that people's brains are a lot more plastic than we ever thought them to be. The important thing about bipolar disorder 2 is the likelihood that an individual, all the individuals who have bipolar disorder 2 will be told the same kind of sentence that you got as those who are told bipolar disorder Mm 1, because I've talked to them. They'll be told that you're going to have a lifelong problem, and if you'll take this medicine, you'll be able to live most likely normally. If you don't take it, you'll have problems for the rest of your life amongst those people who are told that are thousands of individuals who are simply struggling with depression over normal sadness. If you ask them, they'll tell you when it started. Those individuals will benefit from counseling in an amazing way. And, you know, so to say that to individuals who have bipolar disorder too, with no more, no more pathology than we have is a as far as I'm concerned, a grave disservice in medicine. The only people that I'm willing to say that you have a problem and it's probably gonna be with you for life are those who've had mania. And when I talk about mania, I'm talking about the two weeks awake and the $30,000 and the immoral choices that they might make. And then not only just that one episode, I'm talking about somebody who's done it three or four times and it's a recurrent thing. When you're talking to them, they have a history of doing this over and over again, which would make it more likely that they might have a problem to deal with for a lifetime.
0: For the purposes of this discussion, you know, we're using the label bipolar disorder quite a bit. In fact, I don't think I've said it as many times in the last year than I have in this conversation. But I wonder if you would offer us some insight into the dangers of over-identifying with this particular diagnosis but it really applies to any kind of medical diagnosis to the point that which the medical label actually becomes the lens through which we interpret ourselves and the world around us and how does the bible help us when it comes to keeping a right view of our truest identity which is the one we have in christ
1: what happened would be and what we were seeing in counseling were individuals who would come and they said this is these are the behaviors that i've manifested i've been told that i have bipolar disorder and that's why I do them. Most of those behaviors we would look at in scripture and say, well, those are all sinful. <laughs> so I won't call anything a disease that the Bible calls sin. If you're sinning, I'm, we're going to call it that. Mm-hmm. And I, I can remember Ed Welch talking about this in a lecture at a CCEF conference that I heard. And he talked about a couple who came for counseling. And they had come for counseling because they had separated 10 years earlier, never divorced, and they were wanting to reconcile. And the reason why they had separated was that 10 years earlier, He had an episode of mania and had committed adultery, and the wife chose for whatever reason not to divorce him, but they lived apart, and at this point, they wanted to live together again because he had not had another episode for a long period of time. And when the guy came in to the office, Ed asked him why he was here, and he said, well, I have bipolar disorder, and because of that, I committed adultery. You know, it was was interesting to listen to the crowd because Ed said, was that true? (laughs) <laughs> was it true that he committed adultery because he was had bipolar disorder? And the crowd said no. And the reason why was well because the sin that he committed came right out of his heart. And that was what he told the man. And of interest, the guy said, "Oh, okay," and and accepted it. And they went on and counseled, and eventually they reconciled and uh, moved back in together. And it wasn't very long after that that he had another manic episode and but this time the difference was was that his church knew about it his wife knew about it and they surrounded that man his small group surrounded him and they they encouraged him they helped keep track of him and Mm -hmm. this time he didn't commit adultery when I look at individuals who come in with labels such as bipolar disorder and their lives are disordered You know, I think one of the important things to do is not excuse what they're doing based on a label because that locks them into it.
0: Yeah, I would agree, you know, with exactly what you're saying. You know, when we lock people into a label, it strips away so much hope, the hope that we have in Christ that we can change and that this isn't necessarily something that we're confined to in this life and that there is even hope beyond the body that we have now. You know, our outwardly we're wasting away, but inwardly we're being renewed day by day through God's word and through like you even talked about biblical community coming and rallying around us when we are struggling. We have time for a couple more questions. I want to make this one point that really it was a life-changing perspective shifting moment for me when i read in your book a story that you had shared there was a proclamation you made that the lord really used to completely change the way i viewed my own personal journey to healing and it helped me to see that i had actually created an idol out of living a depression-free life. And that thought never even crossed my mind until I read your book. And so the comment that you, or the proclamation you wrote says, quote, I want to glorify God with my life more than I want to breathe. Can you share about the context in which you apply this kind of counsel and why examining motivation is such an important part of experiencing spiritual growth?
1: I always say motive is everything in counseling, as far as I'm concerned. It's not everything, but it's big. The person that I said that to first was an anorectic lady who was in her 40s and was starving herself to death, was on three different kinds of medicine, was being cared for by a psychiatrist who meant her nothing but good and who may have referred her to us. And when when she came in, I listened to her story patiently. And we got to the end of that, and she was the first person I ever said that to. And I, I looked at her and I said, "You know, I think you can get all better, but you're going to have to be willing to say one sentence." And that was when I said it. I want to glorify God with my life more than I want to breathe. What it played out for was that she had been uh, divorced by a husband that she loved, and she was trying to lose weight in order to be thin again and uh, catch his eye, and that had become the idol that she was worshiping and you know the problem for her was is that she put her goal weight loss someplace about 25 pounds on the other side of the dead and you know what it came down to was that she was going to have to love god more than getting her ex-husband back that was the short story for it and that works out well You, you know you put a blank in there i want to glorify god with my life more than i want to blank doesn't make any difference what the blank is You know, whatever it is that is driving your life instead of of, of glorifying God is getting in your way as far as growth and change. I I always take people after that to Matthew 22, 37 through 39, you know, that if you're going to glorify God, you have to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind and love your neighbor. And then after that, if you love God, you're going to be willing to do what the Bible tells you. Where In John 14, where Jesus says, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he's the one who loves me. And then finally, I'll take them to John 13, where Jesus washes the disciples' feet, stands up and says, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me your Lord and master, and I washed your feet. You ought to wash one another's feet. Now that you know these things, happy are you if you do them. If you take that progression, that Bible progression, what you're doing is you're taking someone away from serving myself to loving God and then obeying God and then serving others. And I think you know that progression is what, changes people's lives in, in counseling. I've said that so much that someone once called me up and wanted to know what Bible translation it came out of. <laughs> I said, no, 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 it's Second Corinthians 5, 9, and that's my paraphrase. That's my yeah. paraphrase.
0: Well, I know that I have personally used and credited you with that particular line in talks that I've given. I'm sure that uh, there are some people listening who have heard me mention that before. And again, it was just totally opened my eyes. I'm so thankful the Lord used that opportunity to show me that for such a long time, I had been grinding myself to live a depression-free life. And it wasn't about how do I respond when these overwhelming feelings of hopelessness or sadness come, but it was more like, if I experience it even one time, life's not worth living. And through the Holy Spirit's ministry and your book and a lot of other different things, the Lord helped show me how much hope there is for living to glorify God, because that's one thing I can choose to do. Among the millions of other things going wrong in my life that I don't have control over, I can choose by the power of the Holy Spirit to commit to want to glorify God. And thank Jesus He doesn't leave us to even do that in our own strength. I want to close out the show today by asking you to do something that I ask every guest of the Hope and Help podcast to do, which is to speak directly to our audience. There may be someone listening to this episode who has been diagnosed with bipolar disorder one or two, and they're feeling really hopeless for change. What would you say to this person to encourage them that they can find the peace they long for in the person of Jesus Christ?
1: I always say, you know, with regard to that sentence, I want to glorify God with my life more than I want to breathe, that individuals who are willing to say that can grow and change and generally do. Individuals who don't uh, want to say it generally don't in my experience. So I would say that for the individual who gets their mind focused on the goal as opposed to the problem. You know, biblical counseling is goal-oriented, it's not problem-oriented. You can get yourself out of being stuck in the problem if you're willing to make your goal, I want to glorify God and and love him and and then obey him and then serve others. Uh, you can find hope there. The other thing that I think is very hopeful for, particularly for the believer who's having to deal with something, you know, that may not go away, and I'm going to get to deal with this kind of mood for the rest of my life, is that God will make you able to deal with it. Um, mm-hmm. it you know, it, it's Philippians 2:12 and 13, where Paul tells us that, yes, we're supposed to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, and he certainly doesn't mean that for anybody to come away thinking that we're working for our salvation, but in the process of growing and becoming more like Christ, there is work to do. But then he says, "But it's God who works in you, both to will and to do His good pleasure." That you know, and then eventually he gets into chapter four where he's sitting in prison and tells us to rejoice in the Lord always. And then he says, "I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me." Me sitting in prison here, I can say I can rejoice. So you know, I can look at the individual who's struggling, either with normal sadness or with a label of bipolar disorder two, or someone who is dealing with, uh, you know, a more chronic, uh, difficult problem with bipolar one. And, and, And I can tell them, you know, God wants to work in your life. You're a believer. God wants to work in your life and he wants to work in your life in a way that you'll become more like Christ. And if you want to cooperate with it, he'll make you able to do it. So I think that gives people, that gives people hope.
0: Amen. I totally agree. Well, Dr. Hodges, I am so thankful that you took the time to join me today. I want to give the audience an opportunity to connect with you. If they are interested in learning more about your ministry and your writing and the different things you have going on, where can they go to find you online?
1: I have a website called goodmoodbadmood.com. All small letters all run together. And I irregularly blog there. They can see me more on Facebook. Uh, and I'm C. Hodges Run, all little letters, uh, C-H-O-D-G-E-S-R-U-N. And then on Twitter, I'm Running Doc, all little letters. Those are a couple places. I'm also the executive director at Vision of Hope in Lafayette, Indiana. Our website is at faithlafayette.org. And what we do at Vision of Hope is we help uh, women who uh, have struggles of all kinds, you know, with eating disorders and depression and other things. And They come and stay here for a prolonged period of time in order to gain uh, intensive biblical counseling and in order to make changes when their life is pretty chaotic. You know, some folks need need a place to go where the waves won't be beating them while they're trying to learn how to swim and we have an internship here where we teach women how to counsel women every year we we have anywhere from 8 to 12 women who come and they spend a year with us and they learn how to counsel we and uh, those who have qualified for the acbc exam can do their counseling certification counseling here and and i and the staff here supervise them so that's how they can make connections if they'd like
0: and then you also have a project coming up here sometime in the fall of 2020. You want to tell us a little bit about that?
1: Well, a group of us have written a book. I got to write a chapter, and honestly, I am eager to read the rest of the book. <laughs> I don't know what everybody else said, but it's uh, caring for the souls of children, and it is a book about how to help children and adolescents who are struggling with counseling problems. My uh, chapter was about self-harm, about individuals who harm themselves and cut and things like that. They asked me to do that because we see a fair amount of that here at Vision of Hope. So that, that is supposed to be out in the fall. It's with New Growth Press.
0: If you are interested in getting a copy of Good Mood, Bad Mood, or connecting with Dr. Hodges online at the various places he mentioned, what you can do is scroll down into the show notes, click the link that is there, and it will take you to the page at the ibcd.org website where you can access links to those various resources. Well, Dr. Hodges, thanks again for joining us today for this really important conversation. I just really admire your work here, and you have touched my life personally, and significantly, I'm just incredibly grateful. So thank you so much.
1: You're welcome, and thank you Thank you for asking me to come.
0: Before we let you go, I'd like to remind you to visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help. There you can check out the show notes from today's episode. If you enjoyed today's conversation, why not subscribe to the podcast? That way you'll be notified when new weekly episodes release. Also, please don't keep the Hope and Help podcast a secret. If you know someone who could be encouraged by listening to this episode, please do them a favor by sharing it. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Be sure to join us next time on the Hope and Help podcast.